0: Welcome to the Grace Life Church Podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you are about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church Podcast. Again, a word of welcome to you all, and if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter number 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. Again, if you're a guest, we'll say a word of welcome to you, and we're continuing through this book of Scripture, the book of Philippians, and last week we looked at really an incredibly rich and powerful text, the Christ hymn, which contains two stanzas, found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 and we saw the sacrifice and the humility and the example of Christ on our behalf to inspire and to fuel our living and sacrifice for others and we saw how the lord works in our humility and worked in the humiliation of the incarnation of Christ and also in the humiliation of the Christ on the cross and to accomplish god's means of redemption and the means of exaltation of Christ and It's to recognize within that that this is the way that God desires us to live now towards one another. And to also recognize that the glory that we so often want really belongs to Christ not to us. And one day we will bow with our knees and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And yet even so in this life if all we've ever known is hardship, and all we ever know is hardship. That hardship will give way, that humility will give way to greater glory in partaking with the glory of Christ. And now Paul's words now are directly tied to the exhortation that's given within this, within this text, starting in verse 12 with the word therefore. That is to say, so that because you've been born again, because you faithfully follow in humble fellowship of Jesus Christ, you submit to Him, you bow the knee and worship to Him, and you confess Him as Lord, Paul says in verse 12, therefore, Paul means to show us that this is how we are to continue in Christ. And in verses 1 through 11, Paul expounded what we called gospel humility. We had a two-part sermon series working through those 11 verses, expounding on what it means to be humbled by the gospel. And now... Paul begins to expound gospel sanctification. And I would invite you to stand as we read together from God's Word, verses 12 through 18 in Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen? You may be seated. The sermon summary this morning would be phrased in this way, that God has transformed us through Christ in who we continue to live together in faithful fellowship of our Redeemer. God has transformed us through Christ in who we continue to live together and faithful fellowship of our Redeemer. And I want to call your attention to several truths this morning, and I'm going to categorize them under just two headings. But know this, know that the bulk of the sermon and the application of the sermon will come from the second point, in which will contain several subpoints that I'll flesh out. And so within this exposition, we'll almost work through the entire text twice, given the nature of its broad headings. And so if this exposition feels just slightly different, it's intentional. It's by design. But my prayer is that it will be subtle and unnoticeable to most. But point number one, I want to call your attention to the outworking of the new covenant. Getting this through verses 12 through 15, if you recall, my sermon from Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30 was entitled, Kingdom Citizens... And in that sermon I drew out the interaction and allusion to the people of Israel that Paul was drawing out and alluding back to Exodus chapter 14, of God's faithfulness, of God's protection for people, His people Israel, His deliverance and His salvation of Israel. And Paul picks up on that same thread here again in verses 12 through 15. And the language that he calls to the attention of the reader is language of that of the people of Israel, most noted through his language of salvation or soteria or deliverance that he uses, but also the themes of obedience and trembling and worship and stubbornness and rebellion and grumbling and children of God all of which Paul is making a strong Old Testament allusion and usage here and comparing, if you will, the Old Covenant with Israel to the New Covenant fulfilled in Christ. Consider how Paul ended chapter 1 of Philippians. In verse 27, of a life worthy of the manner of the gospel... And of a clear sign of the deliverance from God, verse 28, and of suffering and hardship on account of Christ, verse 29. A clear allusion to Israel in the Old Testament, only to make just a brief detour to consider the work of Christ and the humility of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, and then directly ties back into verse 12 with therefore, and immediately repeats the same themes that he picked up from in verses 27 through 30, the theme of gospel purity, the theme of shining lights in the world, the theme of a coming salvation, the working and the will of God, hardship on account of following Christ. Further, consider the contrast of Israel in the Old Testament, whereas salvation for Israel resulted, was to be a display of God's power to the nations that they might fear the Lord, that's Exodus 14 and 15, now, fear and trembling is to be worked out within God's people, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Whereas Israel was consistently stubborn and rebellious, Moses even feared how they would live after his death. In Deuteronomy thirty one twenty seven, Moses says, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I'm with you, yet still alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more... After my death, and now Paul writes to a new covenant people, to an obedient people, such is the nature of the new covenant, that God's law is in them, is written on their hearts, and now new covenant people obey whether Paul is present or he is absent. Consider the grumbling and complaining of the people of Israel against Moses in the wilderness, and now Paul speaks to a new covenant people to say, do nothing, with grumbling or disputing or contentious spirit. Paul speaks of them, or excuse me, Moses speaks of Israel being a twisted and rebellious generation that is discontent, children of a twisted generation that they themselves became the twisted generation. Deuteronomy 32.5, they have dealt corruptly with him, that is the Lord. They are no longer his children because they they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now in Christ, we are called and commended to live lives of blamelessness, to be one of innocence as children of God without blemish in the world in the midst of a twisted and perverted generation. Moreover, in verse 15, Paul alludes strongly to language of Daniel chapter 12 of the shining stars or the shining lights of God's people whose names are written in the book of life. And Paul is making a very clear contrast between the Old Testament and the new Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That is to say, consider what Jesus has done. Consider what Christ has done, the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, the humility of Christ and the covenant that we are participating in by virtue of our faith in Christ, not because of our works, but because of the finished work of Christ alone. And this outworking of redemption in the gospel that we have received by grace through faith in Christ now leads us to bring an outworking of the new covenant or of our faith. And that's why I said that God intends that we have be transformed through Christ in whom we continue and live together in faithful fellowship of our Redeemer. And we see in this text not only the outworkings of the new covenant, but we also see point number two, the outworking of sanctification in Christ. And that's in verses 12 through 18, the entirety of the text. And here we are walking through it once more again. Whereas Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 compel us towards gospel humility. Now verses 12 through 18 point us towards gospel sanctification, our growth in Christ, our growth in godliness. What does it look like? How does it work? What are its marks? And I want to spend the remaining time that we have together calling to our attention the marks of sanctification within this text. And I have seven of them. And fitting is seven, the number of wholeness, completeness in the Scripture. Number one, see the disposition of the sanctifying saint. Paul begins with the exhortation in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... Now who's he talking to? Christians. As you have obeyed, Paul means to express a high regard for obedience to the commands of Christ in the Christian life. The obedience is not unto what for, but is an instead therefore. In other words, because of Christ's sacrifice and example on your behalf, because of the good news of Christ, because of His suffering, because of His humility, because of His example, because you have been saved, and because you have been redeemed... And as you have always obeyed, the track record for God's people is that of obedience. They don't have some one-off experience and then move on with their life. And how many Christians are content living that way? Unconcerned with holiness, unconcerned with fellowship of Christ, unconcerned with obedience to Christ. They just assume to live their way according to their agenda, according not to the master, but as their master is themselves. And notice this obedience has both the positive and negative aspect that is not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Christians are those who have been born again, those who share in the atonement of Christ in the new covenant. They have new hearts, not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh that are washed clean by the blood of Christ. And regardless of who's around regardless of what they may be able to get away with when no one's watching. No, instead, they seek to please their Lord always. And they have a disposition towards obedience and towards fellowship of Christ, towards His Word and towards His commands. That's why John would write in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Is this you, Christian? Do you continually seek And are you growing in your desire to please the Lord and to walk in purity before Him and before others? It's an indicator of your growth. God means it as an indicator of your sanctification in Christ, your disposition. Secondly, your diligence. Verses 12 and 13. How many of you know that our growth in the Lord is work? It requires effort. It requires diligence. So Paul says here, as you have obeyed, both in my presence and much more in my absence, work out your salvation. And I'm looking here to correct and guard against the false teaching of what some call passive sanctification. That is that our growth in the Lord just happens and we do nothing. Well, if that were true, beloved, then Paul is very confused about his wording here. The word here for "work out" katagerzomai means to work out or to effect or to produce to bring something about. God saved us not by works, but He did save us for works. To work out here in this text is a present active imperative. It is a command. And notice what Paul didn't say. Paul didn't say "work for your salvation." Nor did He say, work at your salvation. Nor did He say, consider your neighbor's salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is accomplished eternally through Christ's atonement once and for all for sin, through repentance and faith. And we have then been brought from death to life. And we as individuals will give an account unto the Lord. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace that you have been saved, and that through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And because we are saved, and because we are born again, God has now saved us not by works but unto works that we should walk in them. Faith alone in Christ alone saves us. But that faith doesn't come alone. It will be displayed by evidence, by fruit, by working out. And Paul says here, for or because it is God who works in you, both to will and And to work for His good pleasure. Beloved, God has worked in our hearts. Salvation is of His doing. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9 He saved us. He brought us from death to life. It was of His will, not our will. It was His work, not our work. And this working was a working that God delighted to accomplish in us. And His working in us to save us And our working is evidenced outwardly now of an internal working of God. And don't miss this. There can be no working out if there has not been working an in by God within you. But for those who have been born again, there is a diligent outworking and working out of your salvation with fear and trembling, carefully considering the way of Christ because we fear God, Phobos, worship Him, and tremble, we are diligent and carefully following His commands. And we don't take grace for granted or try to abuse grace. But you can't work out what the Lord hasn't worked in you. And I'll say this, if you don't fear and tremble at the thought of standing before God on Judgment Day, and given an account for all of your works beforehand. It is only mounting evidence of your condition before the Lord. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Are you prepared to meet your Maker? Are you prepared to give an account of your life before the Lord? Are you working out what God has worked in you? And if you're not working out your salvation that costs Christ His very life, then you have great reason to fear and to tremble. God will not be mocked. And He will require of you what you claim to have from Him, yet you did nothing with. Thirdly, your demeanor verse 4. Paul says in verse 14, rather, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This has to do with our attitude. This has to do with our demeanor. It's tied directly to obedience and the working out. The doing is that of doing all things. That's in our homes. That's in our lives. That's in our school. That's in our work. That's in our church. That's in Our marriage, that's in the way that you parent, in the way that you relate to others. Paul says all things. Do all things without, that is apart from, grumbling. The word means to murmur. It means muttering, literally a a low or faint groan under the breath. Disputes means reasoning or thoughts, not in the sense that we don't think for ourselves, but we aren't carefully crafting our argument or discourseful discord or our rebuttal against things. But how surprising is it that the first direct application of the way of the Christian life, get this, has to do with our speech, has to do with our tongue. It is, as James says, a restless evil full of deadly poison. And it can and has set ablaze and destroy so much. In fact, this word for grumbling is used eight times in the New Testament. And seven of those times, it is used to describe Israel in the wilderness, whose great sin against God and against Moses and their great evil was murmuring. And whispers of their disgruntledness against God. And by complaining against Moses, they were complaining against the Lord. Exodus 16, verse 8. And listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 speaking of the example that Israel is to us. Starting in verse 6. Now, these things took place for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of those did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, and how we ought to be very careful about what comes out of our mouths. And may it be gracious, may it be seasoned with salt, may it be fitting as to unto the occasion. Do you want to be used by Satan to destroy the local church? Rest assured that murmuring and grumbling is a primary tactic that the enemy will use to do just that to begin working in your heart or the heart of another and to use the words of people. Well, let me just tell you about that pastor. Or did you hear about so-and-so? The ungodliness of murmuring and gossip and slander. And I'll take it one step further. The wickedness, the evil of phone trees behind closed-door meetings for the purpose of gossip and slander and murmuring within the church against one another and certainly against the pastors or the leaders that God has given you. And this was the sin that destroyed Israel. And I'm here to tell you I've seen it destroy churches. And I've seen it destroy other people. And it will destroy you as well. Beloved, our words matter our attitudes matters. And for those who are being sanctified by the gospel, there should be a growing and striving in our holiness that we be careful to please the Lord with our words and our actions, in our attitudes, in all things, Paul says. Fourthly, our display, verses 15 and 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine in the world. Paul's aim here is simply that of holiness for the life of the believer. How many of you would agree that those who profess Christ ought to display the evidence of Christ and holiness within their way of life? Anybody agree with that? And the purpose of our purity in all things, the importance of our words and attitudes is so that we may be blameless. That means faultless, that we may be innocent, that it means pure, that we may be children of God without blemish, that is without moral defect in the midst, that is in your location of a crooked and twisted or perverted generation. And this was Israel's downturn. God intended that they would be lights to the nations, but they themselves became the twisted and crooked generation. But for us as believers, we are to shine like the shining mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, the lights of God in the world, a world that is filled with darkness and sin and perverting truth and evil. Christian, live differently, be marked by holiness, strive for godliness, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews twelve fourteen. And Paul gives to us in this text at least one way that we are to do that. Look at the text again. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, participle here, holding fast to the word of life, holding fast, literally giving your attention to notice, to watch carefully. Beloved, I can't begin to describe the importance and the how much we ought to cling to the word of God in our life. And here... The word of truth. What is your life built upon? What are you seeking to build your life upon except for the word of God? Do you cherish the scripture? Do you read the scripture? Do you turn to the scripture to understand the truth of God's word and to live your life in accordance to that truth? It is a mark of sanctification. Of continually conforming our life to God's word and clinging, holding fast to the word of life. And how many Christians are content with their laws and their wills and their opinions and what they say, rather than what does God say? And it's why Jesus would say, you can build your life on one or two foundations in Matthew 7. You can build your foundation on the Word of God and living and applying that Word to your life and it will be like a strong house. And it won't be beat down, though the winds and the raves beat against it. Or... You can listen to the word and disobey it and not apply it and great will be the collapse of the foundation of your life. Is the foundation of your life the word of God, Christian? I can assure you that all of the ground is sinking sand. Number 5, your determination verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that at the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or did not va- did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's aim here is toward the great and final day that every person is to be judged. And Christ will separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, and the righteous from the unrighteous. And his desire is that he be proud on that day. Not some pride that boasts in self, but it glories in another and seeks to depart the glory of Christ in another. But nonetheless, Paul is striving towards the end of, of an upward call, he would say in Philippians 3, toward the prize of the upward call of knowing Christ. And he says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And such should be our determination, Christian, to live with the end in mind, to persevere, to keep on pressing in, to keep on pressing on. And the mark of the believer who is being sanctified is that they persevere until the end. They press on until the end, until the day of Christ, that our labor and our work and running isn't in vain. And that we would say with the apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Do you love Christ? Do you long for his appearing? Then press on, saint. Keep the faith. Finish the race. Are you still with me this morning? Can you say amen? Number six, our difficulty. Verse 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says, even if I persevere and I press on in Godward determination even as I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I will rejoice. The term, spindo, means to be poured out as a libation or a drink offering. It means to exert energy in a life of service and devotion for another. It comes from Numbers chapter 28. And it's quite literally a devoted offering unto the Lord, and within the new covenant, unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I will gladly sacrifice, I will joyfully sacrifice for your sake, to which I will say is one of the marks of a sanctified believer is that they are devoted and they are committed to serving others. And I find its most relevant application within the covenant community of the local church to give, to serve, to show up for the sake of others, to use your gifts for the edification of the body, stepping up when the needs arise, to be the first to say, I'll help, rather than being first the last to ask. From kids camp to VBS to mission trips, service opportunities, work days, times of help, just simply participating in the life of the church. The maturing and sanctified saint says, count me in and don't miss it an offering is something that costs you something is it not a sacrifice is something that costs you something and for the sanctifying saint the sacrifice or the giving away of what you have is to be seen as joy even if that sacrifice comes in the form of suffering Consider Paul in Philippians 1, recognizing that his sacrifice and his imprisonment was a means to advance the gospel. That is a life that is being poured out as a drink offering. And Paul recognizes that even difficulty is a means of God's working, God shaping you, God working in you, God sanctifying you for your good and His glory. And how short-sighted we become in trials and hardships and difficulty to miss that God is shaping us and conforming us to Christ. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 5, not only that, but we rejoice in suffering. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Paul says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering... As is happening right now, Paul says, I am glad and I rejoice with you. Which leads us to 7 and finally, our devotion. Verse 18. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Consider the partnership and devotion to one another within this text. Paul says, I rejoice and then says, likewise... Just as I am rejoicing, I want you to be glad and rejoice with me. But the word be glad and rejoice are both commands in verse 18. And we are to be doing this together, devoted together. Paul desires the togetherness that is expressed throughout this text over and over and over again. All the way back to verse 2, the completing of my joy is to be done by a together church at Philippi. The having of a same mind in verse 5 is a collective together and devotion of the church at Philippi. The working out of your salvation in verse 12 is a collective working out, not just as individuals of Philippi, but the entire church together at the church of Philippi. The offering of your faith in verse 17 is a collective and devoted shared faith. And likewise, you in verse 18 is a collective and devoted togetherness. The rejoicing is togetherness. The gladness is togetherness. And so Paul says here to the church at Philippi, would you lock arms with me in my rejoicing? And I lock arms with you in my rejoicing. May we rejoice and be glad Together, may I challenge you this morning to rejoice, challenge you to press on into Christ, challenge you to work out your salvation, and challenge you to be devoted together and see it as God's means of sanctification to use Not just you as an individual, but the collective body of Christ to challenge you, to admonish you, to speak the truth and love to you, to when necessary rebuke you and live together in the covenant community of faith. And consider this, consider within God's design of redemption the salvation that He has given, the atonement that He has achieved, the deliverance from our sin, from our souls, from death to life. God did not just provide for us a pardon, but He also gives to us a people to fellowship and live within. Within God's plan of redemption and sanctification, there is a faith community that God gives to us, His local church. And within the new covenant... That is found within the blood of Christ is the gem of the new covenant, the church of Christ, in which God intends to use as a means of your sanctification. And God intends the church to be a part of every Christian to live among and to live within, to be in membership and community and to be devoted to one another and using your gifts, fulfilling the one another commands in Scripture. This is why Proverbs 18:1 says, "Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. And what a gift God has given to Christians, to His saints, a gift and a means of sanctification is the local church of Jesus Christ. Are you a part of His bride? You've heard me preach now for nearly a year, and you've probably recognized I'm a local church guy. That's who I am. And here's every card I got, I am a local church guy. But it's not because I'm a pastor. I'm a local church guy because I believe the Scripture. And the Scripture is clear that Christians belong and live within the context of a local expression of faith, the local church. And God means it as a form of accountability, of help, of growth, of tangible gifts to His people. And I am shocked that the one institution that Christ gave His very life for I'm shocked to discover so many who claim to know Christ but don't want anything to do with His church. They don't want accountability. They don't want others speaking into them. But I say this in humility and love. God has designed His church to provide those things. And I would just give a lot of pause to any notion of rejecting the things that God graciously gives to us for our sanctification. And I will give to you the most straightforward word-for-word application in this sermon right here. That is to say, and I, so help me, I didn't plan this, but my goodness, it's in the text. It is right here in the text of the importance and primacy of membership in the local church and what it means. And that is to say, in just a few weeks, we'll have a membership information class. On Sunday afternoon, the evening of July 30th, And if you've been here, you've attended for some time, and you've been here long enough to say, you know what, I think I've got things figured out here. That's not to say that you're still on the fence or whatnot, but you know where you want to land. You just never put the foot forward to do it. I'll just ask you to come. I'd ask you to commit. I'd ask you to covenant with and to purpose in joining Grace Life Church. To partner with together with, to lock arms with, to, to say, I am here, to say that I'm in. We're coming to a close this morning, but these seven means of sanctification, and this list is not exhaustive, but I pray that you would consider your growth in Christ this morning, how God uses these things to sanctify us, How these measures and consideration of your life within the new covenant that God has transformed us through Christ in whom we continue to live together in faithful fellowship with our Redeemer. How are you doing this morning in gospel sanctification? How are you doing in your fellowship of Christ? How are you doing in life together? How are you doing in faithfulness to Jesus? How is your disposition? How is your diligence to work out what God has begun to work in you? How is your demeanor, your attitude? How is your display of holiness and clinging to the scriptures? How is your determination to press on in the faith and finish the race in difficulty? How is your sacrifice to others and allowing God to grow you through trial? How is your devotion and your commitment together in the faith family of the local church? God has transformed us through Christ. So we may live together and in Christ grow toward more of Jesus in our sanctification. Because Christ has transformed us, may we be sanctified in Him and grow in purity and holiness and devotion and Christ-likeness for all of our days. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has worked in you, And we work it out in our sanctification by faithfully following Christ and His Word. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church podcast.